from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thanks be to God for his word. And now welcome Jonah as he comes to preach God's word. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Man, what's good, Redeemer? Y'all doing all right this morning? Man, I, I want to be quick to express my debt of gratitude for being with y'all, especially to my brother uh, Giorgio for the gracious invitation to be here with you in his absence. You know, I was, uh, I, I was texting uh, G Money um, and Chris, and you know, I, I have to call him G Money because you can't 
be from the streets and call folks Giorgio. You know, that don't, that don't quite work. Uh, so I, I was texting G Money and, and telling them, man, I, I would be playing. I'd bring my worship team and I could play the drums and be preaching. And he said, man, it's like the black Phil Collins or something. And I know all the Gen Zers in this room like, uh, who in the world is Phil Collins? <laughs> Google it, like I tell my kids, Google it. But just in case, we need to give them a little reminder. I know y'all know in there tonight, so come on, we're going to do it together. One, two, three. I can feel it coming in the air too. Oh, Lord. Yep, come on. I've been waiting, I've been waiting moment all my life. Oh, and then them drums, do 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 do. <laughs> y'all know it, man. Thank you. I, I know y'all didn't expect to be singing that one in worship today. You know, this is um. The beginning of year four for RUF at Winston-Salem State, and I can't even begin to express how grateful I am for you and the way that you guys have supported uh, the work from day one. And after two years of crazy, man, we are excited to have uh, normal back on campus. And freshmen started moving back on Friday, and we were able to get out and talk to a bunch of those students. Um, but as Sister Susan mentioned, uh, you know, as we've continued to grow over the last couple of years, we, we learned that one of the really critical needs that we had for ministry to students at a historically black college was that we needed to also be able to get them connected into the local church. And for a while, Shadia and I, I mean, we, we just dealt with the reality of looking around and seeing, okay, God, who are you going to send to come and do this thing? Uh, until finally we realized that what we really needed to do was to look into the mirror because that was exactly the work that God was calling us to. And so uh, this fall, know that we're going to continue the work of RUF during the week. We're going to definitely be there. Um, but also this fall on Sunday evenings, man, we're going to be, begin gathering Soul City Presbyterian Church. So I am, I can't even put into words how excited I am to, to see just how God is continuing to move uh, among us. And I want to be sure you know, though, uh, that this means that there's a lot of work for us to do. Um, the, the reality is many of our students who, who have grown up in, even in Christian homes have uh, and been in many ways really disengaged from the church for the last two years. Winston-Salem State, which was celebrated this summer as being one of the um, best places for LGBTQ plus students. And of course, the reality is, as a society as a whole, we've, we've grown as an increasingly post-Christian culture, which to me only means that we need the good news of the gospel proclaimed throughout our city even more. So please continue to, to pray for us. We're looking, though, at 1 Peter 4, uh, the entire chapter. Uh, we've been working through 1 Peter in RUF all summer, uh, and I, I wanted to just bring you some of what we've been working on, and I, and I hope it blesses you this morning. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if you can feel it. 
uh, quite the way that I do. Uh, I'm sure some of you probably can sense it, but the reality is when we look at this particular text of Scripture, we've got to know that there is some tension in the room. Scripture has this confrontational characteristic that should to some degree for us be a bit unsettling. I I never really quite understood our brothers and sisters who found a church to be a place useful only for their emotive experiences, when the reality of, of Scripture's truth should lead us to some tension. Tension is a narrative that not only is seemingly uh, true of our lives, but it is deeply embedded into Scripture's arc that bends towards the cross. Maybe that tension is, as it often is for me, the, the struggle of a gracious God who, while in his great mercy has forgiven me, man, I wrestle with forgiving myself. Or maybe as though life's purpose is to glorify and enjoy him, what really motivates me is being well-known and well-liked by others. Or maybe though scripture is consistent about a reminder that our God alone is sovereign above all things, the weight of worry is often what keeps us up at night. This, friends, is the tension of scripture. I'm sure Peter understood a little bit of this tension, the the tension of being called as a disciple of Jesus, to walking with Jesus in the contempt of the religious leaders of his day. The tension of seeing the lame walk and the blind come to sight, even the tension of seeing the one who came for the redemption of humanity hanging on an old rugged cross. The tension of running into an empty grave. The tension of being locked in a room where Jesus just shows up to show these dudes the holes in his hands and his feet. It's only when you recognize that tension in the room uh, that you see Peter write in these first verses, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You read this in the tension, and as my students would say, it just hits different. I got to ask you, though. Do you know my Jesus? To arm yourselves with the same way of thinking is a reminder that, as Paul tells the church in Ephesus, that we are to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
So know first that as followers of Jesus, we live in this state of spiritual warfare. But notice that Peter tells us that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. What thinking is that? It is the same thinking that led Jesus to joyfully endure the cross. It's to use our sufferings to be armed with them, to weaponize them, to take on the armor of his righteousness granted to us on the cross. See, Jesus' suffering landed him in a seat at the right hand of God the Father on the very throne of heaven. And if Jesus is our model for faith, you've got to know that you cannot escape the suffering. The Apostle Paul, I I knew, understood a bit about this because he, he tells us, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if you're feeling the pain of suffering this morning, know that it has nothing on the glory of our God. Again, I got to ask you, though, do do you know my Jesus? Because Peter, he, he gives us this verse almost as if it is some kind of mathematical equation. So get this. He says that the sufferings of Christ plus being armed with the same way of thinking equals the ceasing of sin. Church, this is the kind of math that we need to hear this morning, that the Christ who suffered for us, and when we take on his same way of thinking, of sacrificial love for others, then sin ceases. The second verse calls us to not waste our days on human passions, but on the very will of God. It's interesting for me that Peter tells us here to not waste our time on our passions because it's not like all of our passions are bad. Uh, Just as a reflection in my own life, I'm passionate about my health, so I've worked hard to lose weight. I've, I've worked out with a trainer. I've adopted a better diet. I'm passionate about learning and great art of all kinds. Peter says, don't even waste your time. Spend it on the will of God. So know if you're breathing now, know that that comes only because God himself has ordained it. And if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice, know too that God has ordained it. Why? Because it is his will for us. So let me assure you, fam, that nothing that has happened or will happen surprises our God. Nothing catches God blindsided. You know, the the true difference between the things that we're passionate about as opposed to the will of God for us is that our passions, even when they're good things, are only about us. And the will of God is about his plan, and his purpose for our world. Our passions, they feel good to us. We we enjoy them, which is why we're so committed to them. But the will of God is often complicated. It leads us into suffering, and we have no idea what's going on, and we miss the beauty of God's glory. So do you know my Jesus? 
In verses 3, 4, and 5, it tells us, For the time that is past suffices for doing what, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I love these verses because Peter is, is being straight up with us, telling us that we've wasted enough of our time on the foolish things of this world. The sensuality, the passions, the drunkenness, the pornography, the promiscuity, the alcohol that's excessive, the chasing the idols of our hearts, bruh, that is over. Know, fam, that by the very virtue of our union with Christ, just as he suffered for us, know that we too, in our suffering, have been given the power to cease to live in sin. So do you know my Jesus? Sin does, does not rule us. Christ has redeemed us. And the chains of sin have been broken from us. So we've got to learn to walk in that freedom. Look with me at verse 6 because I want to be sure that you see this. Peter says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Peter's idea of even the dead being taught the truth of the gospel uh, is not anything new. He talks about this in, verse, in chapter 3 as well. But Peter writes this kind of detail to only further the narrative that no one has an excuse not to respond to the saving grace of Jesus. Verses 7 through 11, though, the scripture says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show, hope, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I hope as you read these verses, though, that you feel uh, the sense of urgency that Peter writes with. We've got to know that Jesus is soon to come, and this is the exact urgency that we're called to live into. Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. Know, though, that this is an end to both the wantonness of the wicked, but also, though, an end to the sufferings of the faithful. So do you know my Jesus? Notice, though, there is this cause and effect nature of the seventh verse, because here Peter says, because we know that the end is coming, we need to be both self-controlled and sober-minded. And we don't even have to question why, because he tells us that it's for the sake of your prayers. 
Verse 8, though, I pray would be one of the guiding principles that would shape us as the very people of God, because Peter tells us that above all, we are to keep on loving people because love covers a multitude of sin. You know, despite love being the essential characteristic of the believer, I can promise you in the four years that I've been on campus at Winston-Salem State University that our world does not see the church and think that those are the loving folks. We've got to get back to loving and serving people. Because it's there in the service to others that they see the love and grace and mercy of our God at work in life. So again, I got to ask you, do you know my Jesus? Verses 9 through 11 are a call to hospitality and service and I am so grateful for the ways that this has been uh, at the very core of shaping God's people. Know, fam, that it's essential for us to, to continue in this way because Peter tells us in verse 11 that when we serve others, he says God himself in Jesus is glorified. Notice, though, that there is this shift that takes place in verses 12 through 19, that moves us from looking at the way that God's grace is active in our lives to the suffering that becomes the means for growing us. So despite our our deep aversion for suffering, we rejoice in our suffering because it's in those sufferings that our union with Christ shines. The believer's suffering shines light on the glory of our God, revealing a heart for him where He alone is the most valuable thing in our lives. He alone is the most precious and desirable and satisfying. So will you trust him? Trust him even in your suffering. Will you see his glory even in your unrest? Will you trust that He's committed not only to his own glory, but to those committed to making his glory known. Verses 12 and 13 reads, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I don't know about you, but I look at passages of scripture like this and think, man, this is far from the message that comes out of our churches today. In fact, Peter here teaches that we shouldn't even be surprised when trials come. He describes them as fiery to note the way that our sufferings seek only to consume us. We shouldn't see these sufferings as Something strange happening, Peter says, because we acknowledge that in our sufferings, we are united with the God who has so graciously suffered on the cross for us. So do you know my Jesus? Better yet, fam, we're being told that our suffering should lead us to rejoicing because the gospel is the good news of Christ's atoning work for us. 
that we share in our risen Savior's affliction. We share in his broken and bruised body that was crushed for our iniquity. We too share in his death and being buried in a grave that you and I might also then share in his eternal life. Peter puts it like this. He says that we should rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I know there might be some with us this morning who are hearing this and like, man, a God who allows his people to suffer, I I just can't get with that. If that's you, um, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. In fact, I want you to know this message is actually for you uh, because I want you to know that suffering has purpose. In fact, the, the central ideology of Christianity rests on the God who condescends in love for us. This is why, unlike Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and any of the others you can name, They can come and tell you, I I can tell you how to get there, but only my Jesus can tell you that I am the way. So do you know my Jesus? Verses 15 and 14 and 15, it reads, it says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, that you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. These verses present a contrast for us. So that one is the suffering that endures because of the name of Christ that Peter says is a blessing while the other is also a true suffering as well. Yet it's the suffering that comes from the wrongdoings of life. I want to close by taking a look at verses 17 and 19 that simply reads, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice, though, that Peter is clear that judgment begins with God's people. This is the kind of judgment that a parent gives in correcting the wrong in our children. It's turning them back to the correct path, turning them to right decisions. And yet still, when we know that this means that the suffering will be great even among the people of God, how much more than do we know that those far from him will suffer greatly. The household of faith suffers in this kind of correction. We've got to know that there's great severity in the suffering for those Peter describes as the ungodly and the sinner.
So do you know my Jesus? Verse 19 is a summation of thought for Peter. So uh, he tells us to let those who suffer according to God's will to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This doing good is another of Peter's ongoing narratives he writes of. And he seemingly does this purposely because uh, he always manages to connect it with both the very will of God and the growth of the believer, not that we would die in the way that the world will suffer, but that we would persevere in suffering knowing that God is working in us. And though he calls those who suffer according to God's will to entrust themselves to a faithful creator, know that this faithful creator is the one who never wavers in his covenant promise to us. A promise that he would be our God and we would be his people. He is the mighty preserver of his people, the keeper of our souls. He alone is the destroyer of sin and he created humanity by his very hand and he breathed life into him. So do you know my Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know him in whom we find blessedness even in our sufferings? Do you know the one whose eternal love for us has so graciously given himself by bearing the cross for us. So do you know my Jesus? Do you know the one more righteous than Noah? More faithful than Abraham? Do you know my Jesus who comes and fulfills the law's demands, who never sails out like Samson, the greater king than David, whose king Kingdom and rule will never end. I don't know if y'all know my Jesus because he's a rock in a weary land. He's a shelter in a time of storm. He's a friend if you're friendless. Bread when you're hungry, water when you're thirsty. Y'all don't know him, do you? Because he's God's only son. He's Mary's baby boy. He's James and Jude's older brother. He's Matthew's kings. He's Mark's suffering servant. He's Luke's great physician. He's John's word made flesh. He's Acts coming of the Holy Spirit, the only begotten of the Father. He's the blessed, omnipotent hope for all generations. The shepherd of our souls, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the rose of Sharon. He's distinctive in supernatural capacity, superlative in sovereign majesty, exclusive in spiritual beauty, radiant in eternal splendor. He's matchless in his deity. He's the God of gods, the prince of princes. So is there anybody here who knows my Jesus?